0: And I want to make sure that you know about an, uh, sort of almost an emergency prayer request. I got an email Sunday night from Jim Myers that they met at church where they'd been meeting for, I guess, five or six years, seven years, maybe longer. And uh, they were told that they could no longer meet there. And they, Sunday was their last Sunday to be able to meet there. And they have a church of 100-plus people, and it's very difficult to find Uh, Jim's been looking for the last year, I think about a year, for a suitable place, and they have not been able to find one. The problem is that the government's beginning to emphasize the separation of church and state, and the building they meet in is actually, even though it's leased by a church, that church doesn't meet there. It's a large Ukrainian uh, Protestant church. And they don't meet there. They just use their offices in that building. But they have several large classrooms, and they further sublet that to the uh, Word of God church. And now I guess the government's putting the screws to them, so they have to quit meeting there because it's a government building. So Jim is leaving tomorrow. found that out Sunday. He's leaving tomorrow to go to Kazakhstan for two weeks to teach. Jim Dumas, who's been over there, is coming back to the States tomorrow. Fortunately, Mark Musser, who left the field there, has come back here and is looking for a church, uh, was going back to teach for the next two weeks. So they have some leadership there. They have local leadership to look, but we need to pray for that. Then there was a a young man who was a graduate of his school who left early this summer with his wife to go to Belarus. And to work with the church that they had planted there years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, up in Mogilov. And he was working with Volodya Feldman, who's the pastor of the church there. He's a um, indigenous pastor that was a product of that ministry. And uh, the Belarusian government has evicted this couple. And the Belarusian government is is very hostile to Christianity and hostile to the West in general. So... Uh, that's happening. and uh, So we need to pray for Jim and his ministry, his ministry in Kazakhstan, what's going on in Ukraine, in Kiev, and just pray that, that uh, this is a real testing time for that congregation, opportunity for them to use a faith rest drill and for some of the people in the congregation to step up to the plate in terms of leadership. This always happens. When the shepherd's gone, uh, people in the congregation have to step up and take take the initiative. So it's a good growth time for them, even though, like we all know, growth times are not our favorite times. But it will be an opportunity to see the Lord work. All right, well, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can uh, call upon you and you will hear us and you will perform great and mighty things that we know not. We have many promises in Scripture that if we cast our burdens upon you, you will care for us. Father, we pray for Jim, for the Word of Life Church, for uh, what's going on there with his ministry plus his ministry in Ukraine, I mean, excuse me, Kazakhstan. We pray that you would watch over them, that you would give him tremendous opportunity to teach and that you would uh, allow him to relax while he's in Kazakhstan. You will also raise up people in the church that will take the initiative to look for a place for him to meet and uh, for the church to meet. We pray that you'd provide a place uh, that they may continue to meet and grow and advance. Father, we just know that at times like this that you you are doing and moving in a certain way in that congregation to prepare them for their future ministry. Father, we also pray for Mark as he's traveling over there and for Jim Dumas as he's traveling back, that he'd watch over them and pray for the time that that Mark will have as he teaches the students in the Institute. Father, we continue to pray for us that we might be steadfast, advancing forward in our Christian life, that we might not uh, grow weary, but that we might keep our eye on the objective, living today in light of eternity. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome to your Bibles with me to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. And this is where we get into the beginning of the life of Abraham. Last time we looked at the end of chapter 11, which sets us up for what God is doing in a major shift in the way He has dealt with the human race. Up to this point, He has dealt with all of humanity in mass he has not restricted himself to any group of people but with the rebellion against god at the tower of babel which of course is not that far babel and babylon is not that far from or of the chaldees where abram lives just about 150 miles to the northwest uh, so abram is right in the middle of this anti-god culture and we studied that a little bit the They were into astrology. Fertility worship was developing at this time. There's just an entire mass of paganism uh, develops from the matrix of the civilization that comes out of the Tower of Babel. This is the beginning of real cosmic thinking and the beginning of idolatry and false religion, uh, fertility religions, and all kinds of abuses so that God no longer will work through the human race as a whole, but now he is going to work through one individual and through his descendants. Now, this is monumental. This is a radical shift in the way God has dealt with human uh, human beings for about 2,000 years. The, the year of Abram's birth is 2166. This call of God that's mentioned in 12.1 probably came when he was, somewhere between 60 and 70 years of age. We don't know when. We can't pin it down. We know that he's 75 years old when he left Haran to go on to Canaan. But we don't know how old he was when the Lord appeared to him and gave him instructions to leave Ur and to head to Canaan. And we don't really know much about his life before this. There are some indications from tradition. I have a book at home called The Legends of the Jews by Ginsberg and it's interesting, it's a little too fantastic to believe some of the stories about the childhood and early life of Abram, but if there's a kernel of truth there, it is that that Abram became a believer when he was a young man and he had a a, a strong, positive volition. He was very interested in his relationship to the Lord, and uh, for whatever his reasons were, the Scriptures do not give them But for whatever his reasons were, God chose Abram to be the one through whom he would work. And, of course, that involves uh, God's sovereign choice as well as all of his knowledge of human history and human beings and everything else. And so he calls out Abram specifically, and he is going to shift how he deals with history. Now, this is a watershed event for all of history. And to understand even today what is going on in terms of foreign policy, what is going on in the Middle East, we must understand the structure of the Abrahamic covenant. This becomes the basis for everything. You cannot understand or properly interpret the history of anything, the history of philosophy, the history of ideas, the history of economics, the history of law, the history of literature, unless you understand the Abrahamic covenant. You can't understand the Arab-Israeli conflict unless you understand the Abrahamic Covenant. You can't understand terrorism unless you understand the Abrahamic Covenant. And if you're not operating within the realm of reality that is defined by the Abrahamic Covenant and God's relationship to Israel, then you're divorced from reality. This is how we understand so much that affects our world today. So we have to start with an understanding here. And This is also a dispensational shift. So what I want to do tonight before we get into more exposition of Genesis twelve is to step back and look at what is happening dispensationally, how this is shifting, and what the basis for the or what the structure of the Abrahamic covenant is, because that is really the idea here. Uh, last time I pointed out, and I pointed out also I pointed out when we did our overview a few weeks ago that the key ideas in the Abrahamic Covenant, which are land or blessing, are really the key to understanding every paragraph, every detail that is revealed to us in these chapters from uh, the end of Genesis 11 through chapter 25, really through the end of Genesis. Everything that we're told about has something to do with either the land, Abraham as a blessing to those around him, blessing by association, or the promised seed that God is developing. And that becomes the structure for understanding and interpreting Genesis. Well, there's this change here, and we call it a dispensational change. And to do that, we have to, and before we get into that, we have to understand what we mean by a dispensation. So we'll start with a passage in the New Testament, Acts 1, 6-7. And this is, takes place just prior to the Lord's ascension to heaven if you if I'd included verse 8 that would have taken his last words his parting commands to the disciples. And the situation here is that they've gathered together with him and and they know that something momentous is about to happen. I doubt that they ever thought they were going to watch him blast off into the heavens. But they they recognize something and they say, "Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?" In the very question that they're asking recognizes that they don't have a kingdom at this point. This is an observation that isn't paid attention to very much by the, by the uh, people who are either amillennial or, or, dis, or uh, progressive dispensationalists who believe that, we, that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom in some sense because they don't recognize there's an inauguration of the kingdom in any sense. They say, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. And so Jesus' answer to them is clearly a tacit recognition of the fact that the kingdom has not been given at all. So we're not in in any kind of kingdom stage. Now the only thing I want to point out here is that Jesus tells them This is ten days before the church age begins, ten days before the day of Pentecost. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs. And the two Greek words there are chronos and kairos. Chronos is where we get our word for chronometer. And the basic idea in chronos is that it indicates time from the perspective of events in succession. What are the succession of events? One thing following another in the course of time. It's a word that is uh, used in Galatians 4.4 in terms of the fullness of time, chronos, when Jesus Christ was born. It emphasizes those uh, successive events down through history. Often the word refers to events in fulfillment of prophetic predictions. Now the second word that you see there is the word translated epochs. The old King James translated it seasons. It's the word kairos. And kairos indicates a broader expanse of time. Certain time periods that have certain definable uh, characteristics. We would compare it to our word age. We talk about a, a period, large period of time as is an, is an age. We apply that word age to to uh, periods in the Bible, the age of Israel, the church age. That's the idea. So Jesus makes the point, it's not for you to know times or seasons or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Now those are the first two key words in understanding dispensations is this time element. A third word that's used that's not in that passage is the word ionos. We'll get there in a minute. But The point I'm making here Jesus says, ten days before Pentecost, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. But then just some 20 years later, when Paul writes the Thessalonians, he says, Now as to the times and the Epoch's brethren, same use of words, chronos and kairos, now as to the times and the Epoch's brethren, you have no need to be of anything to be written to you. In other words, by 52, 53, probably not even that late, AD Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica that you you don't need to be told about these things because and the implication is you already know. So what's happened between Jesus ascension in 33 and Paul Paul's epistle to the to the Thess, Thessalonians about 50 probably 51 52 53 AD is that the church age began, and with the church age began you had the giving of special revelation which we call the mystery doctrine of the church age. And with that package of information revealed to the apostles, they're told some things about prophecy and the coming coming kingdom. And of course there's prophecy in First Thessalonians chapter four, there's prophecy in other passages. So it's not that we're not to know anything about times and seasons but that Jesus was telling those, the, the apostles right before Pentecost that they didn't need to know it then. But we've been informed now there, are, there was more revelation. So we have these two words, kairos and chronos. And then a third word is the word ionos, or age. Sometimes you have it used in a, it's, uh, in a double sense, and that means from age to age or eternity. But an age is similar to kairos, indicating a period of time in human history. And an age, whether it's kairos or kronos, or kairos or or, um, ionos, an age may include several dispensations. Now, that brings up the big question, which is, what is a dispensation? What do we mean by a dispensation? I'll never forget the fact that a few years ago I was talking to somebody who'd grown up in church, allegedly churches that taught the Bible, and I mentioned dispensationalism and they'd never heard the word, which is a sad commentary on the lack of teaching in churches today. So we want to make sure we understand dispensations because it may be new to some of you. The word dispensation, as you see it up there, comes from the Greek word oikonomia. And that means a stewardship or an administration. A stewardship or an administration which emphasizes a responsibility delegated by God to the human race during that period of time. So actually, dispensation itself doesn't have a time frame. It emphasizes the responsibility given by God. The other words have the temporal element to them. So... When we look at a dispensation, we're talking about the fact that God delegates certain responsibilities in different periods of time. He administers things differently. The the word oikonomos comes from two Greek words, oikos, meaning house, and namos, meaning law. So etymologically, you could break it down as house law. And if you're a parent or if you were ever a child, which probably covers most of you, You know that when you were growing up, the rules in your house changed. When you were a baby or an infant, there were certain rules. I remember the boundaries I had up until I was probably maybe seven or eight. I couldn't go past the corner. I couldn't cross certain streets. I had to stay within a certain uh, parameters of the house. And then after I reached a certain age, I could uh, go further. And uh there were different rules, different periods of time when I was in high school, I could had to be home by midnight on the weekends and um when uh I was in college, it was one o'clock, and if I was at home or you know probably after a year or so, it didn't matter. so different the rules change as you mature. The same thing happens in history. God deals with the human race on different principles. Now the root ideas, the core principles, grace, that salvation's is by uh, faith alone, salvation's by grace through faith alone, never changes. But other aspects change. The role of the Holy Spirit in that dispensation changed. The re- amount of revelation changes. Uh, we know more than the Old Testament saints, the Israelites knew. The Israelites knew more than those before Abraham knew. So there's different amounts of revelation to which we're accountable. So when we talk about a dispensation, we define it briefly as a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. That's the short version. It's a distinct and identifiable administration. That means it's going to have certain characteristics that set it apart. A distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. Passages are Ephesians 3:2 and Colossians 1:25 and 26. Now, I can expand the definition a little bit to try to bring out some other elements. This is the long version of the definition. A dispensation, therefore, is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. A closely connected but not an interchangeable word is the word age, which introduces the time element. So when it's talked about an age, it's emphasizing the fact that it's set off by a certain period of time. It starts at a certain point, ends at a certain point. The focal point there is on the time factor. When we talk about a dispensation, we're talking about the administration of the human race during that time period. So age is similar, but it's a slightly different emphasis. The third element of the definition is that God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of His administration, determined by the level of revelation He has provided up to that time in history. So He manages human history like it's a household. And as you go through time, more and more revelation is given. Not only is more revelation is given, but as we see the difference between the church age and the Old Testament, more divine enablement is given. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit fills you. What a fantastic privilege that is. But that's quite different from the Old Testament. We have a completed canon of Scripture, so there are no revelatory gifts functioning today. Whereas in the Old Testament, people... Uh, were involved in Revelation. There were dreaming dreams and visions and God spoke audibly to people. It doesn't happen anymore because it's a different time period. God's operating on a different uh, different set of rules. And then fourth, fourth item in the lengthy definition is that each administrative period is characterized by Revelation that specifies responsibilities a test in relation to those responsibilities or an evaluation. There's a, usually a, there's almost always a failure to pass the test because that's part of what God is demonstrating is man's inability to really do anything apart from his complete uh, sustenance. And then God's gracious provision of a solution when that failure occurs. So these then become the key elements that we look for to try to identify when a dispensation uh, changes. So when we look at this, we will recognize that the distinct elements that we're looking at are from the viewpoint of God. We have to get these from the Scripture. That in a dispensation, there's a time when one dispensation ends and another begins, but there may be a transition period. For example, you had a short transition period between the crucifixion of Christ, which was the end of the law, and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost some 50 days later. The understanding of dispensationalism emphasizes the divine administration of history. We have to recognize that in history, God is the ultimate cause. You can't interpret history today or yesterday without a divine viewpoint framework. You just can't. And when you read secular historians, you always have to keep in the back of your mind that they're ignoring the fact that God is involved in human history and what God's producing in human history and that the events of human history turn on God's plan for Israel. See, if you don't understand that, you can't properly interpret much of history. Now, you may be able to do a pretty decent job understanding the first battle of Manassas. That's probably bull run to most of you. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean you can do an honest job understanding terrorism or Iraq or anything else that's going on. One thing we understand from this is that new revelation will designate a shift from one dispensation to another. And that's what we have in Genesis 12. There's new revelation. God is going to single out one individual and give him a whole new set of promises and responsibilities. And that means that something is happening. Now, God does that with other people in history, but it's not a dispensational shift because he's still working within the framework of what he's already done with Abraham. When we move from one dispensation to another, some things will remain the same and other things will change. For example, when we are in the broad age of Israel, which begins with Abraham, when we're looking at that age of Israel, when God calls out the first patriarch, Abraham, we have the initial dispensation of the age of the patriarchs. And then after the exodus, we get into the age of, of the law. You didn't have the law. During the age of the patriarchs, so there's a there, there's some things that are different, but uh, many things are the same. The focus is still on Israel. And each and another thing we learn is that each dispensation has its own responsibilities, its own tests. And then finally, the thing we learn is that. The, the dispensations move us in a certain direction. Each dispensation is designed to demonstrate different points in relationship to the angelic conflict. All of which we'll get into. Now, let's just look at the beginning. You start off in the Old Testament with theocratic dispensations. The reason we use the word theocratic is because God is the focus. And the first age is the age of the Gentiles. The age of the Gentiles has three dispensations in it. The first uh, begins with the covenant, the Edenic covenant in the garden, or the creation covenant. And this is the dispensation of human perfection. The dispensation of human perfection. That ended with the fall when we have the Adamic covenant, that revision we studied in Genesis 3. With the Adamic covenant, there are basically modifications to the creation covenant. Now there's a curse. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful to fulfill the responsibilities of the Edenic covenant. But certain elements of the Edenic covenant are still in force. For example, man is still to, to uh, rule and subdue, the, subdue nature. But now it's going to be a struggle and he's not going to be able to bring it to completion. Only under the Son of Man. When Jesus Christ returns, is that going to be brought to completion? Then there's the second dispensation, which is called the Age of Conscience or Self Determination. There's no indication of self government, delegation of governing responsibilities. And if there's a police force during this time, then it's the angels, it's the cherubim with their flaming swords. That age, or that dispensation, the dispensation of conscience ends with the flood. And then God establishes a new covenant with all of mankind, the Noahic Covenant, which is your second revision of the creation covenant. And its sign was the uh, sign of the rainbow. And that established the function of civil government, the delegation of governing power. That's what we've got so far. And then we go into a second period, which is going to be the age of Israel, the age of Israel. And there are going to be two dispensations there. The age of the patriarchs, the, age of, and the dispensation of the patriarchs, and the dispensation of the law. Okay? The foundation for this shift is an understanding of the covenants. So we have the uh, initial covenants, the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, and the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect. And then we have this first of the Jewish covenants. These are unconditional and permanent covenants they're not dependent upon the Jews obedience to Israel and the first of these the foundational covenant is the abrahamic covenant and there's three elements to it the land the seed and the blessing and the land covenant is further expanded in deuteronomy 30 the davidic covenant in second i mean the seed aspect in the davidic covenant in second samuel 7 and the blessing aspect in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So you see from this that the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1-3 becomes the foundation for understanding not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And yet, we live in an era today when people want to claim, and Christians want to claim, that the Abrahamic covenant was voided by the Jews when they crucified Christ. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant really was focusing on a On heaven, Uh, the land there is not literal land in Israel. The land there is really just a metaphorical, spiritual speak for heaven, and therefore we don't have to support Israel anymore. This is dominant. So this has real political implications. Furthermore, you also have Christians in government and have had Christians in government for any number of years who have had a literal understanding of the Abrahamic covenant and a literal understanding of the land promise. And so they have influenced policymaking in America. In fact, I think one of the most remarkable uh, uh, illustrations of this has to do with the recognition of the modern state of Israel. In 1947, when they declared their independence and that they were a nation, I, I forget the exact number, but I think it took... President Truman, uh, you know, two numbers are in my head: uh, 11 or 18 minutes. It was under 20 minutes to recognize Israel as a, as a state. But there's a story behind that. The entire State Department was recommending that uh, that he not recognize Israel. We've always had a problem with anti-Semitism in the American State Department, and so that was there was pressure there to 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 to, uh, not recognize Israel. But a number of Zionists, those who wanted to recognize the state of Israel, knew that from President Truman's uh, earlier years, he had served in the army with and grown up with a a Jewish man back in Missouri that was a close friend. And they brought him to the White House, and he met with Truman in the days prior to prior to the, uh, uh, Israel's uh, announcement of their independence. And they talked with Truman and encouraged him. And see, Truman was, uh, Tommy always calls him, that Cussing Baptist from Missouri. And he was just a, a rough old cob, but he had grown up in a Baptist church that was premillennial, And he understood God's plan for Israel. I don't know what else he stood, but he understood, but he understood that much. And so he made a decision that he was going to support Israel. And the interesting thing is Franklin Roosevelt never would have recognized Israel. I think that's clear from his papers. And I think that's one reason God took Roosevelt out when he did so that Truman could be president. Truman was president for one reason. Truman was going to recognize Israel. And that's exactly what he did. And he refused to even meet with his advisors or the State Department. And in complete, uh, uh, completely contrary to their advice, he walked out of the White House and recognized uh, Israel as a new nation. See, doctrine matters, and doctrine changes history. And you get a lot of Christians, e- even some Christians, who are just absolutely idiotic about the Bible, and they find out that, or uh, are, they, they are about Christianity, they find out that you've got conservatives who believe the Bible. Like I understand, um, these kinds of things have taken place with uh, various officials in the, in the current administration and they have sought out the advice of pastors such as uh, Jerry Falwell and others to find out what does the Bible say about Israel? What does the Bible say about Babylon? What does the Bible say about Iraq? To see if there's anything there that can give them some guidance. And other people say, well, that's ridiculous and you shouldn't do it. Well, uh, there wouldn't even be a nation Israel. This is how God is going to move things along uh, in the end times, not because they do this, not because they're trying to bring about prophecy, but because they're trying to recognize and honor God and His Word. They recognize that they needed to honor Israel. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. So it's an understanding of, of doctrine that uh, by national leaders and their understanding of history, and they know that they are in a point of historical significance. And it, has, it all goes back to this uh, Abrahamic covenant. So when we look at the topic of the Abrahamic covenant and the dispensation of patriarchs, we're going to look at it under these categories. The scripture, what's the key scripture? Who are the key people involved in the covenant? What are the provisions of the covenant? Categorize the provisions in the covenant. What are the basic motifs or themes in the covenant? What are the confirmations and what's the status? Uh, and what's the sign of the covenant? So that's, that's our outline it will probably take us this week and next week to just survey this and get get our uh, mental fingers around this topic. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you." And as I pointed out last time, this is a the verb here for amar, which is the word to, the Hebrew word to say, is a a, a cow perfect. And a perfect tense verb in the Hebrew... Tenses work very differently in Hebrew. Uh, We think of tense as a time thing. Whereas in Hebrew, it's more of what the uh, technical grammarians call aspect. It has to do with the kind of action as opposed to the time of action. And so when when we read, now, the Lord said, this can have what we call a uh, pluperfect sense. The Lord had said to Abram, see... A typical of Hebrew Hebrew narrative, you have kind of an overview given in 27 to 32 that sets the stage and sets the structure. And then we go back and we get the details. What was really happening? What motivated Terah and his son uh, Abram and grandson Lot uh, to leave Ur and head to Haran and to begin this migration, this movement to the land of Canaan? And here we see that it's motivated by a mandate from God. God said to Avram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house. See, he is going to separate Abram from that pagan, rebellious culture. And we're going to have to spend some time studying the doctrine of separation. Because, see, that's what God does is he's separating believers. Believers are to live a life separate and distinct from the cosmic system around them. See, you always have legalistic believers who come along and make that mean something, something uh, extremely odd. Of course, some of the extre- uh, um, one of the more extreme elements of that are the monastics who go hide up in the hills or cloister themselves away, or the Amish, or others. It's not what that, that refers to. It, it, you had that kind of physical separation in the Old Testament because God was establishing a new nation in a new, on a new piece of real estate. That's not the idea today. So we'll have to get into that. But right now we're just getting the key passages on the covenant. Uh, verse 2, And I will make you a great nation. That's that seed idea. Here's a childless man whose wife's barren. We studied the doctrine of the barren woman last time. And God is going to use regeneration or excuse me, in a physical sense, regenerate her womb as a sign of spiritual regeneration as He builds this new nation. And then God says, I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be, it's an imperative, go be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see the three elements here of the Abrahamic covenant. A land promise, an emphasis on the seed or the descendants, and a promise of blessing. Genesis 5. 13, 15 through 17, gives another indication. Um, The Lord said in Genesis 13, 14, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him... See, that whole thing with Lot separating has to do with God fine-tuning Abraham so there's no interference with the seed. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. So again, we have an emphasis on the seed, on descendants, and on the land. Genesis 15:1 through 21 extends the borders. Of the land to the northern borders up on the Euphrates all the way down to the uh, southwestern border, the river of Egypt, which many believe is the uh, Wadi El Harish, the border between Israel and Egypt. But in the meantime, Abraham is to stay in the land basically a stranger and eventually his descendants will go into slavery in Egypt. Genesis 17, 1-21 reiterates the covenant and gives the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And then in Genesis 22, 15 to 18, there's a reaffirmation of the covenant after uh, Abram's test, Abraham's test, whether or not he would be willing to sacrifice Isaac. So these are the basic scriptures. Uh, Genesis 12, 1-3, Genesis 13, 14-17, Genesis 15-1-21. Genesis 17, 1 to 21. Genesis 22, 15 to 18. Now, every covenant is actually a contract. Just like you sign a contract when you got your credit card, when you bought your house. Uh, many other ways we enter into contracts. That's all a covenant is, was a legal contract. So you have uh, two parties to a contract. And God is the party, the first part, because he's the one initiating the covenant or the contract with Abraham, and Abraham is the party of the second part, is the representative of what will be the Jewish nation. Now, the thing that we have to understand about a contract is that that the provisions are written and spelled out in order to keep everybody honest in fulfilling the obligations of the contract. If you just talk about a contract in general terms, then the people in the contract can do whatever they want to. I mean, if you hired somebody to remodel your house, and you wrote out a contract, and you and you just said, well, we want the house painted, and want some new carpet, and uh, want uh, the, the, a few rooms uh, overhauled or changed, we want new countertops. Well, who knows what you're going to end up with. You know, you come back a few days later, and there's little paints left on the wall, and you got a bunch of uh, plywood on the countertop, and you've got some old carpet on the floor. You, it fulfilled the contract. But if you spell out specifically in the contract exactly what you want, exactly what you're paying for, then you have a basis for seeing that accomplished. And this is what we have in the Scriptures is details in the contract. Details which allow you to understand the contract and to rely on the contract and to expect its literal fulfillment. The implications of this are profound for understanding the whole uh, concept of interpretation and hermeneutics, even today in law. The issue today is how do we interpret the Constitution? You have the liberals who say it's a fluid document. You can interpret it any way you want to, and it changes from generation to generation. But if that's true, then... Uh, If that were really true, then you could apply that to your real estate contract, your mortgage, your uh, credit card contracts, uh, filling out your income tax return. So you can't live like that. So we recognize this is a contract between two people, God and Abraham, who is is the representative of the nation. And Abraham uh, has no conditions placed upon him. God is giving this to him. We, we call this, this is called a royal grant treaty in Old Testament studies because it, it follows the pattern of the king who, will, who is willing to give or bestow a gift upon a, an obedient subject, someone who has, it's, it's a reward in, in essence. And so that's what we see, the, the Abrahamic covenant is like a royal grant. It's unconditional. It is a gift. There's 13 provisions. That are given in the Abrahamic covenant as we extrapolate that from all of these different, uh, different passages. First of all, God promises to develop a great nation from Abraham. He's going to build a great nation, and uh, even though Abram will give, there will be many nations. Primarily, he's focusing on one nation, and that is Israel. Second. Provision is that God promises an actual piece of real estate. He gives the boundaries the Mediterranean on one side, the Euphrates on the other, the Wadi El Harish, the river of Egypt down in the southwest. There are specific boundaries given in Genesis twelve seven, Genesis thirteen, fourteen through seventeen, and Genesis fifteen seven to twenty one and Genesis seventeen eight. I'll give those to you again. Genesis twelve seven uh, 13, 14, uh, actually 13, 14 through 17. That's 13th chapter, 14 through 17th verse. Uh, 15th chapter, verses 7 to 21 and 17:8. Third provision, Abraham was to be blessed. God was going to bless Abraham and this went into effect immediately and we see that by chapter 15, Abraham is probably the, one of the wealthiest men in the world. He had... Numerous cattle and sheep, he had uh, over 300 servants. He's an extremely wealthy man. God has blessed him materially. Fourth provision: he promises that Abraham's name will be great. He'll be famous. We're still talking about him. Four thousand years later, Abraham's name will be great. Uh, fifth provision is those who bless him will be blessed. Those who bless Abraham, those who are positive towards Abraham and his descendants, will in turn be blessed by God. That's in verse 3, 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 3. Sixth, those who curse Abraham, literally those who treat him lightly, will be harshly punished. So God promises to protect him. Even if you treat him lightly or with disrespect, God is going to come down hard on anyone Who is abusive toward Israel. Verse 7, we're told, I mean, point 7, we're told that in Abraham all nations will be blessed. Every nation is blessed because of Abraham. And that, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed, according to Galatians 3. That promised seed culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for everyone. So it's through Abraham that everyone is blessed. Eighth provision, he is told that Sarah will have a son. It's not going to be accomplished through a an adoption of, of uh, uh, his servant. It's not going to be accomplished through his uh, surrogate son or, or through the birth of a son through a surrogate wife, Ishmael, uh, through through Hagar and Ishmael. It's going to be done through his wife Sarah. Sarah will have a son. Chapter fifteen, verses one through four. In 17, uh, 15 to 21. It's not going to be Eliezer and it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be the child of Sarah. The ninth provision. God promises that His descendants will spend 400 years in bondage in Egypt. So there's a foreshadowing of their slavery in Egypt in chapter 15, verses 13 through 15. Point 10. Other nations will come from Abraham. Not just the Jews, but other nations and the many Arab nations can trace their, themselves back to either Ishmael or his second wife Keturah. And this is found in Genesis seventeen three through 6 Eleventh provision is that God changes his name from Avram, meaning uh, a uh, exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. 12th provision, Sarai's name is changed to Sarah from my princess to the princess. Sarai is changed to Sarah. That's in 17.5. And then the 13th provision is that the token or the sign of the covenant is circumcision. So all of that's promised in these passages to Abram. It changes history. Everything changes because of what God does in a very private private act to Abram this isn't announced it doesn't show up in the Jerusalem times it didn't pop up over in the uh, you know uh, the the Ur day you know it sh- it pops up in a very private communication between God and Abram it's not uh, uh, trumpeted throughout the ancient Near East how do we categorize these provisions First of all, God promises certain things personally to Abraham. He promised seven things to Abraham. That he would be the father of a great nation. That he would, himself would possess the land. Now that's an important point because Abraham never possessed the land. So Jesus is going to come along and use that as an argument for resurrection. Abraham has promised that he will live in the land or possess the land, inherit the land. But he never inherits it during his lifetime. So that's an argument for uh, resurrection. Other nations will come from Him. Kings will arise from Him among His descendants. He's promised personal blessings during His lifetime. He's promised that He Himself will be a blessing to others. And He is. He's the one who goes out and and, uh, defeats the armies from the east. And He rescues the hostages. And He brings back the spoils. And there's other things that he does where he's a source of blessing to those around him. And he's promised that his name will be great. Seven things are promised to Abraham personally. There are also other promises to the seed, to Israel. promise that the nation will be great. That in its destiny there will be an innumerable number. More than the stars of the sky or the sands of the seashore. They are promised that they will possess this land forever. And they are promised ultimate victory over their enemies. And to the Gentiles, there are promises that they will receive blessing if they bless the descendants of Abraham and cursing if they curse them. And they are promised spiritual blessings or salvation through the seed of Abraham. So that's how we can categorize the provision, provision. Some to Abraham, some to the seed and some to Gentiles. Then we have the three basic motifs or themes of the covenant. That's land seed or blessing. Every time you hear Abraham, you ought to think land seed blessing, land seed blessing, all night long. Wake up at 2:30 in the morning, land seed blessing. You need to remember that. This is a foundation for being able to evaluate anything today. Listen to, watch, uh, watch the lies on. Uh, On the evening news, think in terms of land, seed, and blessing. Confirmations. Abraham had eight sons, Ishmael, Isaac, and six other sons, through three different women, through Hagar, through Sarah, and through his second wife, Keturah. But God only confirmed the covenant with one of those sons, with Isaac. It is through Abraham and Isaac that the line goes. Not Abraham and the sons of Keturah, not Abraham and Isaac. Ishmael despite the uh, distortions and historical revisionism and lies of Islam. Uh, Genesis 26 uh, 2 through 24, God confirms that covenant with, with Ishmael. I mean with Isaac. And the Lord appeared to him as is to Isaac and said, "Do not go down to Egypt, stay in the land of which I shall tell you." sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you, Isaac, and to your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. See, it's a reconfirmation of the land-seed blessing promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Isaac, in turn, had... Two sons, Esau and Jacob. But the covenant is only confirmed to Jacob. And Genesis, uh, let me see if I have it up here, 28. There it is, 28, 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, Isaac the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. So you have land and, and seed. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Land, seed, and blessing. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Land, seed, and blessing. See, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's important. It is the descendants through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that makes you a Jew. Just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham doesn't mean anything. It's through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This sets the framework for the Abrahamic covenant. It's an unconditional uh, covenant that sets the parameters for Israel's uh, future history. This sets the stage for the... um, Dispensation of the Patriarchs, the dispensation of the Patriarchs, which covers the period in the Bible from Genesis twelve one through Exodus eighteen twenty seven. God, the central person in this in this dispensation is Abraham. He's the central person, so we think of this as the major major focal point is understanding Abraham. We call it the dispensation of patriarchs because this was the group through which God worked, the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Sometimes it's called the age of promise or the dispensation of promise. And that idea recognizes that this uh, revelatory factor of the Abrahamic covenant, that this was a promise given to Abraham and to his seed. The responsibility during this dispensation was to obey the Abrahamic covenant. That was to keep the seed isolated from the surrounding pagan environment. They failed to do it, so God had to take them out of the land and take them to Egypt because the Egyptians were so racist. They hated the Semites, and they weren't going to intermarry or inter- interbreed with the Sem- with the Semites at all. So they isolated them in the little uh, womb of Goshen. And it was there that God protected them, and they grew from 70 individuals who went down to Egypt with, with Jacob to a nation of about two, to two and a half to three million in just a short period of 400 years. And it's possible. The math's been done. The test was to see if they would remain separate and be a blessing. They failed through intermarriage with the Canaanites, and it threatened the seed. And so God judged them by sending them in slavery down to Egypt. But in His grace, God preserved the nation and He delivered them from slavery to bring them back to the land in order to work out His plans and purposes. Now that's the structure for understanding this part of of Genesis and this part of Abraham's life. What is God doing? Well, that's what God's doing. He's trying to set up a a counterculture movement through Abraham, just as he does to the church, a unique group of people who have uh, specific revelation through whom God is going to work. We'll come back next time and get into the intricacies and details of, of the text with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. We thank You for what You've provided for us. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for the way you work through Abraham and through the nation Israel. And Father, we continue to pray for the safety of Israel, for their uh, turning to you, for the salvation of the Jews. And we know that this will come about eventually, for the scripture says all Israel will be saved. And Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.